Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with hockey great Jeremy Roenick. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, we got a nine-time NHL All-Star. Finished his career with over 500 goals and over 700 assists. He was inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame in 2010. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Roenick. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the program. Absolutely, Booner. It's good to be on with you, pal. What's happening? Nothing. All right. Today, this is it's a rare day where I take a back seat. But today I'm the I'm the uh, student and I'm talking to you're going to be the professor today because, as you know, (laughs) I'm not a hockey guy. Love hockey, but no, not that much about it. I'm a baseball guy, but I I can't figure this out and doing my homework. Your 45th all time in points. 513 goals, 703 assists. He played 20 years in the NHL. How are you not in the Hall of Fame? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, you would think that the, the Hall of Fame would be for, you know, play on the ice, your contribution to the game, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, in hockey, it might be a little bit different. They, you know, they have uh, they have a a – a chair of 30 that that do all the voting and you know it's sometimes you know you feel like you're just not one of one of the crew not one of the boys club and you know it becomes a popularity contest it becomes uh who has the most pull uh amongst the uh the hall of fame board and who they want on so you know i i wish it was just about you know how you represent represent yourself in the game and where you finished in points and and the type of player that you were for, especially for your country. And that would be it. Um, but politics always plays into everything, you know, it seems, especially these days. So, you know, it's, um, if I ever get in there, great. If, but I'm not holding my breath. I'll tell you that. But do I think I deserve to be in there? Absolutely. 100%. And that's why I say, you know, I'm, uh, there, there are differences between the sports. You know, I have enough, I, I, I I have my own ideas about the, the baseball hall of fame. You know, I think there are little, their criteria is a little much. There's a lot of players, a lot of great players I played with that are on the outside looking in. And, and I just don't think in the baseball side that uh, they don't induct enough people. I mean, I, I see some of these players and I'm going, he's not in the hall of fame, but he's in the hall of fame. And like you said, there is politics and everything, but, it is what you do on the field, what you do on the ice. And it's not a, it shouldn't be a popularity contest. Shouldn't be. Uh, he said, she said it should be, what did he do? You know, I, I always took a lot of pride and, you know, and, and probably in your sport too, we sit down at the end of the year and there's a player's vote and we vote mm-hmm. for the outstanding player at each position. Now I always took that serious. Right. And, and as, as you know, Jeremy, there's guys you lo- love that you played with. There's guys you don't mind not going to dinner with them. But I'll tell you, when they put that when they put that ballot in front of me each and every year, I took it serious. And and personal feelings aside, it could be a player that that I don't like at all personally. But I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. 
I'm going to put his name down if he deserves it for what he's doing this year. And I, and I think that's the way it should be. And I don't think it's always the case. Yeah, I totally agree with you. There's no question about it. And, you know, again, it it does sometimes is a popularity contest, but uh, I, I respected the players that were hard to play against that I didn't like playing against that were tough, that were, you know, that had, uh, that had, um, you know, chips on their shoulder that were assholes. Um, you know, those are the players that I wish were on my team. I think, uh, you know, I tried to be one of those players that, you know, people said the same about me. Uh, and, and again, you know, you talk about representing your, your, your city, you know, what you played through, uh, the dedication to the game. You know, I'm the third all-time leading, leading American ever to play in the National Hockey League in 100 years, of 103 years of the National Hockey League. You know, it's kind of surprising that, you know, you have a, a, a stat like that and you, you can't you can't get into, you know, the Hall of Fame of hockey. It's 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 kind of it's kind of crazy if you think about it. But, you know, your my career is not is not going to be based on whether I get in the Hall of Fame or not. I had such a great career with un, unable to win a Stanley Cup, which shows you how hard it is to win a Stanley Cup. But um you know, I, I, I'm really happy with what the dedication that I put to the game, the way that I played the game, uh, what I sacrificed for the game, and knowing that I, um, that I played it to win. I didn't play it for other reasons, which is, which is I think, important. Where I think some players, you know, maybe a little bit more now, play for different reasons. All right, young Jeremy Roenick, born in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, moved around a lot as a kid. Started playing hockey at four. Uh, take me through your childhood. Other sports or, or hockey was first love and you yeah. knew what you wanted to do? No, I played a lot of sports. I um, I played, uh, obviously I was a golfer. I played baseball as a kid. I played uh, I played football for a couple of years in high school. Um, I was a very, very avid soccer player. Soccer was probably my number one sport. And I... Um, I, I just loved playing playing everything. I was a, a jock at heart, and uh, I started playing hockey when I was when I started skating when I was three. I didn't start playing organized hockey till about four and a half, almost five. But um, you know, it was one of those sports that I just I I just gravitated to because it, as a young kid, there's a lot of kids that get on the ice and they don't like it because their feet hurt in the skates or they're too cold or. Um, you know, it's just, they have to, they're frustrated because they fall a lot. I was one of those kids that just, it just seemed to come natural to me and, and my parents couldn't get me off the ice and it just went right, right down from there. And I just had such a, um, such a, uh, a love for it that it was it was never, ever work. And I'm sure you were like that with baseball, going out into the fields with your buddies and just playing, um, you know, shooting pucks out in the driveway with my brother for hours and playing all summer and with multiple teams and, you know, going from soccer games right to hockey games on the weekends. And then, you know, at times baseball games and, um, you know, it was, I was very good at, at, at every sport except for basketball. But at the, at the time I picked hockey cause it seemed to be the, the one sport that was giving me the most attention. And as far as being a kid now, we all know, you know, I, I definitely know what it's about for, for, you know, I've had three, three boys now grow up and in this era is it, it's different than our generation, but it, nowadays it's so uh, specialized and you pick baseball and this is what you do. And you go to, you know, you go to travel ball teams and you play here and you play there. Um, 
How is that? I've always been curious because I know hockey, it's kind of a, you know, not too many people, especially in America. Oh, he plays hockey, plays travel hockey. You know, I have some, my cousin did, but it's not the norm. You know, in baseball and growing up in California, you play basketball, you play football. Hockey is Mm -hmm. very different for us out here. Um, right. But what's that? What's that like as a kid? Logging hours, parents having to drag you around, and I, you know, when I was doing my homework, I, I did read for for a year. You were taking trips from Dulles to Newark uh, to play yeah. on probably what what is equal, you know, to a travel ball hockey team. And uh, yeah. how was that? How was that growing up? How much time did it take? Oh, it was it was crazy because as hockey goes, and especially in the East Coast. You know, it, hockey is different than any other sport because you need to have arenas and ice in order to play. And there's very, there's limited arenas in every, in any specific area. It's not like, you know, being able to go outside and pick up a basketball game on a, on a court that's near, near you or a baseball field that's near you or a soccer field that, that, that are just seem to be every other block. Hockey, hockey arenas are, are, you know, fewer and far between. So the travel became crazy. So, um, travel used to be sometimes two to three hours to to your nearest home game, uh, going up to Canada to and and taking those sixteen seventeen hour uh, you know trips from Virginia when I lived there. And you're right, I did I did every Friday at one uh, thirty. I'd let leave school and go jump on a People's Express and fly from Dallas up to New Jersey and play for a team called the New Jersey Rockets because they were so good. Um, and we put together a team that won two national Bantam championships back to back years. So it was worth every, every uh, minute of the travel. And you got to remember, this is when you could smoke on airplanes and, you know, the crazy stuff that's happening. It was just, it was, it's kind of a, a nutty time for me at, at uh, 12 years, 12, 13 years old um, to be out on my own traveling on my own and uh, spending a lot of hours. I mean, it's a lot of hours and hockey. Sometimes you have practices and games at six o'clock in the morning. It takes a lot of dedication from your family and from your parents to get you there, get up. And they give away a lot of their own fun and livelihood to, uh, to sacrifice you playing games. And, you know, my parents were no different than anybody else's with myself and my brother. I think it's pretty cool though. You're 14 and you're just, you're getting on the bird every Friday. Like, <laughs> like you're a pro. Hey guys, got to go, man. Got to catch my flight. You know, I'm pretty special. I got to go over here and play hockey. I'll tell you, and, I tell and you, I'll tell you it, make, it, make, it makes you grow up really quick. It makes you be uh, more, you know, pretty responsible. That's for sure. So um, I had to, I had to mature and, and grow very quickly and not, not be t- uh, timid or intimidated or nervous of, you know, being on my own. And I think that that really helped me, especially as I turned pro at 18. Pretty cool. All right. So you end up uh, settling down back in Massachusetts, family moves back there and you end up going to Thayer Academy. Take me through those years, which takes you right up to the draft. Yeah, those were great years. My dad actually took a pay cut uh, from from his job with mobile oil down in Virginia, he wanted, it was either me going up and playing major junior hockey in Canada, which was just, I mean, absolutely brutal, brutal hockey. It was, uh, it was, you know, you know, ass beating, uh, hard, hard hitting, you know, animal animalistic type of hockey when, when you're going up and playing in the major junior area. And because it is such great talent, such strong talent, all these guys that are, really competing to, uh, to be seen for the draft. So instead of, uh, my parents sending me away to major junior and leaving home, uh, my dad took a pay cut 
uh, pretty much half his pay and went, went up to, we went up to Boston, uh, got the chance to go to, to prep school, live at home to go to high school. And I just so happened that I went to a great school at Thayer Academy, which is a, a, a non-boarding school, non-boarding prep school. So I was able to live at home, uh, which was great to be close to my family. So they could, uh, you know, keep their, keep their eye on me. They're a very, uh, very protective uh, group. And, you know, I played with a kid named Tony Amante on that same team who, who made the national hockey league two scored over 400 goals. He was my line mate. Uh, at Thayer Academy, we won two New England championships um, in three years that I was at Thayer, and we had one of the best teams in New England. And Tony, Tony, and I pretty much dominated the high school ranks and played together in in Chicago for four years and dominated the National Hockey League for four years. So I was really lucky to be um, be next to some really good hockey players, even right from high school from the start. So um, I just ripped up all the you know all the records in high school uh, during my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. And and it was kind of funny how my junior year ended, but uh, I ended up turning pro right out of my junior year of Thayer Academy and going from high school hockey right up to uh, literally to the right to the National Hockey League where I went from kids playing against kids to playing against guys that looked like they, they should have been in the penitentiary, not on the, not a nice arena, which was a pretty scary thing. And that's pretty awesome too. Uh, is it, what would you say that's equal to, would it be equal to like uh, Kobe Bryant that went right from high school to the NBA? Because in baseball, yeah. this, this is not an option, you know, very, very rarely. Uh, but once in a while, you'll see uh, a college draft for, for the major league baseball draft that, that goes straight to the big leagues. You know, John Olerud did it. I'm just trying to think guys offhand, but never would it ever uh, a high school draftee go straight to the big leagues, but you did. And yeah, what man, you yeah, said, you said you're going, yeah, you're going from playing with boys to playing with, like you said, NHL, these are men. Yeah. These are guys here to kick They're your ass. Men. And mean looking men and mean, mean acting men, like guys that'll just that'll knock your teeth out and smile at you and, and laugh. You know, it, it was not an easy situation. There's no question. It was intimidating, but it, you know, it, I know it doesn't happen very often in sports. I know it happened with, you know, you said Kobe Bryant happened with LeBron James. Uh, I think there was, um, there's been a, uh, probably a half a dozen uh, hockey players that have ever come straight out of high school um, in the history of the game. So it doesn't happen much, but what's really crazy is, you know, hockey is, is more of a Canadian's game. You know, it's not so much an American game. It's dominated by Canadians, especially when I was growing up. So, you know, the, the draft and the teams pretty much um, were very Canadian dominant in terms of who they selected, who they picked, um, who they led on their team. Um, you don't want to call favoritism, but there were a, a ton of Americans playing in the game, especially high school kids. So for me, at 155 pounds, uh, junior in high school, um, to be drafted first round and to be able to go into the National Hockey League was a, was a huge, huge, um, you know, phenomenon. Um, you know, Bobby Carpenter did it. Uh, Phil Housley did it. Um, uh, Tom Barrasso did it. Those are, those are probably three or four guys that I can, that you'd probably recognize as players that have been able to do it, but it does not happen very often. I, I think I might be one of the few, the last ones to do it. Yeah, just skip the minor leagues. Pretty cool. 
I told Old Root, I was a teammate with Old Root, and in, in baseball, if you if you skip, if you don't go to the minor leagues at all, that's a big big deal. So Johnny Old Root, he goes straight to the big leagues, to the Blue Jays, and he's on a World Championship team right out of college, Amazing. which is rare. Amazing, yeah. And then at the end yeah, of his that career, is, that is very rare. Yeah. At the end of his career. <laughs> he gets released by the Mariners, gets picked up by the Boston Red Sox, and they they put him in AAA for a couple weeks to to get ready for for to come back for the pennant run. And I remember sitting at dinner with him. We were in Boston. I said, "Rude, you did it backwards, man. You went to the minor leagues at the end of your career. <laughs> Never did it at the beginning." But but it it's a pretty cool thing. It's a pretty awesome thing. Not to, like you said, yeah. not too many people do it. So tell me about the the Gretzky meeting. Uh, to play in that 88-89. He, he had his own team, I guess. And uh, you, end up, you end up scoring 70 points in 28 games. What was that What was yeah. that team you went right out of the draft? You're the eighth overall pick. What was that team you went to with yeah. that, that yeah. Wayne? Yeah. So it was, it was pretty crazy because when, when I was 15 years old, I was a sophomore, uh, sophomore in high school. And um, I got a call from uh, from a GM from a team called the Hull Olympics in Quebec for the Quebec Major Junior League, and this is, is um, his name was Charlie Henry, and he was best friends, kind of like a father figure for Wayne Gretzky, um, and ran Wayne Gretzky's team, the Hull Olympics, and they wanted me to go up there and play. Um, so uh, when Gretz came into town uh, in Boston, when they played the Bruins, he invited me to breakfast and uh, we went to breakfast with Wayne Gretzky and a couple of the other Edmonton Oilers. And then he took me to the Boston Garden, took me in the locker room, kind of showed me all the way, kind of convinced, trying to convince me to, you know, to go the major junior route. We'd love to have you up here, so on and so forth, which as a 15 year old, I mean, here's, you know, here's Wayne Gretzky quartered me around trying to get me to go play for his team. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. The crazy thing was, is, um, you know, I was already two years into my high school and who we declined the offer to go. So saying no to Gretz was, was kind of a tough thing to have to do, but it was, it was the right call. Um, and so when I got drafted and I, and I left to go play in Chicago, I actually made the team in Chicago, the first, the out of training camp. So I played four games, didn't play very well. Um, and the coach think, thought I needed a little bit of, uh, of, of, you know, just a little bit of growing. So what they did is they sent me to Wayne Gretzky's team up in Hull to kind of get, you know, get my, um, get my bearings about me play against some tougher opponents, kind of feel my way around the game. So I went and played junior for three months in Hull, which Gretz was so happy that I was going playing for his team, even though the Chicago Blackhawks sent me there. So I, here I am making a minor league a minor league salary from the National Hockey League, playing in the junior ranks. So it was uh, it was not a bad thing to do, and I just absolutely tore up the uh, the junior ranks, the junior team, and as you said, seventy points in twenty eight games is pretty unheard of. And then got called up to the National Hockey League after the World Juniors, uh, after I played in the World Juniors in Alaska, pretty much never went back to uh, to Gretz's team. But it was a pretty pretty crazy story how I got to Gretz's team and how I refused them. And then it ended up working out on the, on the backside. Cause I, I just needed a couple, couple months to get ready for NHL play. So, um, but it all worked out great. And your debut you, that year, you're, you're in the, uh, you're in the standing cup playoffs as a, how old were you? 18 years old. 
<laughs> I, I was uh, at that time. I was uh, 19 with my first okay. my first playoff, which was uh, 1989. Yeah, 1989 first NH- playoff. First first NHL moment where you knew. All right, I'm not I'm not at Sayer anymore. Um, well, I had a few of them to tell you the truth. Um, I, uh, but the biggest one was my first playoff round. And I think it was the second playoff game that I ever played in. Um, I got, I got hit in the face with a skate and it cut me for 15 stitches uh, right up the side of my nose. And in the very next period, uh, I got into an altercation with a guy who was six foot five you know, 240 pounds, and he cross-checked me in the mouth and knocked all my teeth out of the front of my mouth. And um, I remember being in such shock, and the referee didn't see it. He said, nothing happened, nothing happened. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, I opened up my mouth, and I had, like, hundreds of pieces of my teeth fall out onto the ice right in front of the referee. And he's like, I guess something happened. Um, Ended up giving – the guy, this guy, Glenn Featherstone, a five-minute major. I got a two-minute minor. I came out of the penalty box after I after I um, served my penalty and literally scored the winning goal uh, of the game uh, coming out of the penalty box. So, it, you know, I tell you this because it, it was kind of it, it kind of set the precedent for how I was going to be looked at. A guy that was going to play through pain, and got, and I had, a, by the way, at the, after after the game, I looked like I just went through a war, and I had the biggest smile on my face with teeth all, you know, teeth all missing and slices and stitches all up my nose. I had the biggest smile on my face, and that kind of that that kind of set like a an attitude. It, it set my kind of my persona that I was I was going to play. It didn't matter what happened. That uh, I was going to battle through pain, battle through adversity, and and still show up. So. That's um, that's what um, you know, kind of, kind of made me popular, and it, I really tried to play off of that, and I tried to live up to that every time to do things that um, that made people say, "Wow, that was that was awesome," or "Man, that guy's fucking tough," or "You know, that guy's going to be there for me," or "That guy's going to compete." You can't chase him away from a game, so. You know, that's that was probably the defining moment that uh, that made me that 1989 uh, playoff round against St. Louis. So. You're in Chicago, 91, 94, you're an all star every year. Um, And it comes time to go to the Phoenix Coyotes in 1996, getting drafted as a kid with the Blackhawks being kind of the man in that organization for that, for that tenure of your life. And then all of a sudden you go to Phoenix and it, it, it's an expansion team. So this is the first time Phoenix has NHL hockey. How was that for you? And, and what was that like? How did the city take to that team on that first year? Yeah, it, w- it was kind of bittersweet. I mean, you know, I was a star in Chicago and I love Chicago. Um, you know, it was kind of, it was, it was the city of, of Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, myself, and Chris Chelios. I mean, that, and you know, that was kind of, that was kind of the, the team there, you know, Jim McMahon, um, you know, all the stars, we were, we were the hot shots, the big shots of Chicago. And then, you know, 96 happened and, you know, I was a free agent and uh, I was a restricted free agent, which means that the team had 
a little bit uh, had control over me of where I went. I wasn't free to go wherever I wanted to. So it made things difficult. And at the time, the the contracts and the money that was getting paid out was starting to escalate at a very rapid pace. And unfortunately, the team that I was on did not want to want to go along with that with that escalation of of, of salaries. And we got into a we got into a pretty you know a pretty heated argument and uh, bypassed. Uh, and uh, you know the team ended up you know, trading me to Chicago because of the things that we said to each other, because we were at such an impasse on contract. And, you know, it was, it was definitely a defining moment in terms of my career. Um, and going to Arizona, I was like, wow. I mean, first of all, it's not a hockey city, but um, it was still a team that had great players on it. Um, I played with Keith Kachuk, who, you know, should be a hall of famer, 500 goal scorer. Um, again, another one of the best Americans of all time, Craig Janney, Adam Oates, Rick Tockett, I mean, Teppo Newman, and I had some of the best best players that I played on in, in Phoenix. But the city absolutely loved having us there. I mean, they gravitated to us so fast because we jumped in and we um, we built uh, new arenas in Arizona. We we started youth programs. We gave back to the city. Uh, we, you know, we literally... Um, we literally did as much as we possibly could for the community, not just go in front of them and play. And we gave them a good product on the ice. So we had, we had full, full buildings every time we played. And, you know, during the, the playoffs, everybody wore white. It was a big whiteout and the, it was electric in the lock in, in the stands and in the city. And it was really, it was nice to know that you could leave the arena, not worry about people bothering you, recognizing you, um, it's not the main sport in the city, but, you know, still live a life. You play golf and off, you know, off days and, you know, go to practice and flip flops. It was definitely a different type of uh, way to, to, to play hockey. And, and I, and I enjoyed it and my family enjoyed it. That's where my kids were raised. And uh, we lived there for, had a house there for 26 years and, you know, just recent, just recently moved out. But, um, you know, we, uh, we thoroughly enjoyed Arizona you know, if I could go back and do it all again, I would probably choose to stay in Chicago my entire career, but it didn't work out that way, which is okay. Once again, you're a free agent. You're an all-star 99-2000 uh, with the Coyotes. And in 2001, uh, you're headed to the Flyers for for five years as a, as a free agent. You're an all-star two years there, 02 and 04. I, I want to hear about the broken jaw, 19 places. Yeah, that was um, this is actually the second time I broke my jaw, and it's the one thing that I said I. It's one injury that I never wanted to have happen because I've seen, I've seen guys go through broken jaws, and um, I um, the second. So this was the second. The first broken jaw was in um, was in 1999. Darian Hatcher elbowed me, broke it in five places. You can see that on YouTube. It's pretty pretty gruesome. But the second one was really bad because I was in in Philly playing in New York in Madison Square Garden, most famous arena in the world. And I caught a slap shot, a puck going about 105 miles an hour to hit me right straight in the side of the jaw. And I saw it coming just at the last second, was able to turn my head just quick enough so that the puck hit me on the side of the jaw rather than right dead straight in the middle of my mouth. And all I remember is, uh, is coming to, and there's blood all over the ice and 
you know, I could, I could just feel like I couldn't talk because uh, when the trainers were talking to me, I can pretty much just mumble. Uh, so I knew that my jaw had been shattered all over the ice. And um, I, I remember standing up and everybody was kind of around me. And I, I think this is pretty cool because if you know anything about hockey in Philadelphia and New York, that they don't like each other. The fans hate Philly and the Philly fans hate New York. So it's like, it's, it's hatred. But when I stood up and skated off the ice, I, uh, I got a standing ovation from, from the, from the fans of New York, which I thought was pretty cool. I think I'm the only Philadelphia flyer ever to get a standing ovation. And I like to think because they thought I was tough, they were probably, you know, clapping because I was leaving the game, but I like to talk to, you know, think that they gave me some props for skating off the ice rather than getting stretchered off the ice after having my jaw blown off. And, um, I ended up, uh, I ended up eight weeks out. And the crazy thing is that we're going into playoffs. We're going into April right now. I was off for eight weeks and we're, we're battling for that playoff spot. And I remember the, the doctors told me you have eight weeks and then we can take all the, the wires out and take the screws out of your mouth and all that stuff. And, and we can get you back to playing. And for the next eight weeks, it was excruciating. I still skated, even though I had a broken jaw, you know, just to stay in shape. But I remember the eighth day, right to the day, the eighth day, we had a big game against Ottawa. And I went to the rink early. I still had all the wires in my jaw and I was still wired up. And I, I went there, um, you know, in preparation to play the game that night. And I told the doctors in the locker room, take these things off. We got a big game tonight. You said eight weeks and I can play. And they're like, you know what, let's just take you into the offices the next day. We'll take all their stuff off at our, at our doctor's offices. We don't have all the proper tools to take all this, all the, all your wires out and uh, we'll do it tomorrow. And I was so adamant that I was going to play that night. I said, I said, the hell you are. I said, you said eight weeks. You're taking these things out right now. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. The game is at 7. And I remember yelling to my equipment trainer down the hall to bring a pair of wire clippers and pliers into the training room. And, and, and he, he did what I asked him. And I took the wire clippers and the pliers. And I looked in the mirror in the training room, right in front of the doctors and right in front of our, our medical trainer. And I started snipping the wires out of my, out of my jaw and pulling them with the pliers as, as you can hear them you know, screeching between my teeth as I pulled the wire, you know, out from between my teeth. And the doctor's like, stop, 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 stop. Okay, I'll do it. And, he, um, he, he, he was so worried that I was going to hurt myself, but he, he took the wires out right there uh, on the training table. And I played that night and actually had a couple assists and we won the hockey game. And, um, you know, I thought that was like the coolest thing that, uh, you know, that I can get back into a game and play right within three or four hours of taking the wires out of my mouth. And that's what I, I think is cool. And me and you have talked about, uh, the mentality of, of hockey players, you know, uh, Percentage wise, I mean, they're just, it's just, it's a different thought process. You know, I thought I had that process as a baseball player. There's a difference between being injured and being banged up a little bit. And, and, you know, the modern day athlete, well, (laughs) and I think there's different reasons for it. I think it could be the finances today. They're, they're so big. and, And I understand an owner wanting to protect his product. But it seems like, to me, for my taste, the, the athletes today in general are just 
overly babied. We take a little, take a couple extra days. I love that, that I, I had a few times in my career where I had a similar, you know, not the broken jaw, but hey, you can play on Thursday and you bet I'm playing on Thursday. And I love that mentality. Mm-hmm. If I'm ready to go, if I can help this team win, I'm out there. I, I don't know. That's why, that's why recently, yeah, uh, it's, you know, when, when me and you played in our yeah. poker tournament recently, I talked about it. Mm-hmm. I love hockey players. I've always loved them. They have the smallest mm-hmm. egos out of all major sports. Uh, they're just down-to-earth guys. They like just going out, having a good time, and they play hard. They show up. They post. And, and that's what mm-hmm. it's all about. Can, you re, can, you, can I count on you as a teammate to be in the lineup when it all counts? And, and if you're banged up yeah. – That's all right. Get your butt in the lineup. And that's why I've always respected the game of hockey and the players that play it. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, Booney. I think, um, and and what you said is, is, is pretty, is pretty true also that, you know, nowadays these, these players, these kids in these, in, in the games, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, or hockey, they are treated so much different than we were back in the day. You know, you want to talk about spoiled, you know, I mean, we used, I used to go into the, the Chicago Blackhawks locker room. They had two bikes. They both had they both had chains on them. One of them, one of the bikes, had, the chain was off. It had like um, a clothes thrown all over it. We had, you know, one one uh, one set of dumbbells, one bench, you know, a couple jump ropes, and that that was it. You know, you walk in, you walk into a into a locker room now. Uh, it, I mean, it looks like it looks like Planet Fitness. And you walk out of there, you go into the training room and you have personal chefs that are making you lunch and breakfast pretty much, uh, you know, on order, uh, like you're in, in a top end restaurant and they're making millions of dollars. And it's totally big business. Now they take care of these kids and they spoil them something fierce. Well, we, we I don't think they worry about anything these days. They get paid a lot of money. They don't worry about uh, what's going to happen to them if they don't have their job? They don't worry about um, the the pressure of of having to put up big numbers uh, because they're making money that's going to last them for years and years. Uh, when and I'm sure it's the same for you, Booney. When when I was playing, we we were scared of being out of the lineup. Uh, we played hurt because we were afraid that if we if we left and somebody else came in and did a better job than we did, our jo- we were going to lose our job. You're going to lose your spot because everybody was fighting for that job. And if you didn't have your spot, you're going to the miners and making peanuts, or, you know, you're going to have to find another job that's going to supplement your living. It wasn't, it wasn't the big money today. So we were in fear. I mean, you played because you played hurt because you didn't want to take that chance. You wanted to win, but you also didn't want to lose your spot. And I think kids nowadays, they don't have that fear. they, they're like, ah, you know what? I got a, I got a twisted ankle, you know, a twisted ankle that normally would be, you know, three or four days or three, or two days until you get back in the lineup. Uh, they, they sit out for ten to ten to two weeks, ten days to two weeks because they don't have to. They don't have to put it up that pressurized uh, situation to, to have to score goals or put up points or do whatever to, you know, to earn the money that they're they're given. There, you know, I know it's kind of it sounds weird, but I, I just think there's not as much of incentive to get back in the game as quickly nowadays as as it was back in the late '80s, early '90s, and I think that's the same for all sports. 
No, I think you're right. I mean, I remember, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough. I didn't have any major. I, I went on the, on the disabled list twice in my career. And I remember both times, all that went through my brain was, wait a minute. I've, you know, 80, 80 RBIs is different than 100 RBIs. Uh, 25 yep. home runs is different than 30 home runs. There might be millions of dollars by missing out on those, <laughs> you know, those numbers, those, those magic numbers 100%. that we all have in our head. 100 percent. Couldn't, you couldn't I, be more right. And I agree with you on that. It's like, you know, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I've got to get, you know, I've got 19 home runs. I've got to play. I got to get, you got to hit certain marks, 20. If it's on a certain year, I got 29 homers. I got to get 30. That's magical. There's something about those numbers. It's like hitting 300, you know, 298 is great, but when there's a three there, it's the the symbolism of it is, is, uh, and I'll tell you, you brought up that story about your, the, the sprained ankles. This, this is how I was. I was a young kid. I was in Montreal. I was playing for the Reds, but we were playing the Expos. And I sprained my ankle real bad uh, on that. That turf in, in Montreal was horrible at, uh, at their stadium. I sprained my ankle on the night before real bad. And it was one of those where it just went bad, completely sideways, hit the turf. And you walk off the field and you know something's wrong, but it's going to swell up later. So I remember mm-hmm. going home that night to my hotel and I thought to myself, you know, every time my, I, I've sprained my ankle in my life, usually when I wake up in the morning, it's really blown up and I can't walk on it. So tonight I'm not going to go to sleep so it doesn't swell up. I remember, and this is how, <laughs> this, I really thought like this. I was probably 24 years old. I'm sitting at the hotel up all night. I didn't let myself go to sleep. I go to the ballpark. I told those trainers, I said, tape me up. And they looked at me and they said, you're not going to play today. And I said, the hell I'm not. I'm playing. Tape me up. And at this point, they're kind of looking at each other like he thinks he's playing. Well, we need to humor him here. They taped me as, as heavy and as, you know, as, as tight as they could. And they said, all right, Brett, we're going to go out on the turf and we're just going to have you do a few sprints for us, you know, just getting loose, <laughs> almost like laughing at me behind my back. And I said, okay. I go out there, that first sprint of about 10, 15 feet, I almost fell down. I looked at him. I said, there's no way I could play tonight. They're like, well, we figured we had to do this to, so you'd quit bothering us. Now get in the training room, ice your ankle. It's going to be a few days. But but that's the mentality I'm talking about. That's just how it was. That's how we thought. And until you got to prove to us that we can't get on that field or, or for, in your case, you, I can't be on that ice. You need to prove it to me. But uh, it's interesting. 100%. 100%. 100%. And I grew up in Jersey. I love the oh man. I played hockey in, in the winter. We used to mm-hmm. we used to uh, you know shovel off the what lakes. Town, what, what town in Jersey? I was just over uh, the bridge. Uh, closest big town was Cherry Hill, but it, it was a little town called Medford. And when my dad played for oh, the Phillies, sure, sure. I, I, know, I, I, I know grew Med- up there. I know, I know Medford. I, well, I lived in Morristown, New Jersey, which is really close. Oh, to did Bedford, you? Right. Okay, so you're but right yeah, down the, the street. Right, yeah, the next next town over. Yeah, the next town over. Yep, yep. So we grew so, up. Okay. You know what it's I, like. It snows. That that lake's thick enough. We shovel the snow and we play hockey. And and I did yeah. it. I got a chance to. Oh, this is my this is my claim to fame in the hockey world. I'm in Cincinnati, <laughs> and they have a minor league hockey team that is right next to Old Riverfront Stadium. 
So I'm playing for the Reds and they said, Hey, we'd love to have you come drop the puck for the, for the minor league hockey game. I go, Oh, I'd love to do it. And and I called over and I don't know if I was supposed to, and I said, can I skate around with the guys before they said, sure. They'd love to have you skate. And it was kind of cool for me because I knew these guys weren't expecting me to be able to skate and I could skate a little bit. But the cool mm-hmm. part was, you know, you guys, you guys are getting loose, almost like layup lines in the NBA, but you're doing your thing. Now you got me, baseball player, overhanging with professional hockey players. And they're thinking, <laughs> oh, he can't. And I started putting, you know, I'm linking my turns and they're going, he can skate. But now when you guys started upping the speed on me, I realized my place and I thought, all right, I'm not very stable on this ice. So that, that was my claim to fame, dropping the puck for the minor league hockey team. It's pretty cool though. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's, you know, I think we all kind of have those, uh, those same situations, right? So, you know, I've gone taking batting practice and tried to hit a home run, uh, you know, in, in Philly and at, uh, at veteran stadium, right. And actually, actually hit one, out of left field on at veteran stadium during, uh, during batting practice. It was, it was awesome. So at, so the next day I went back for, you know, for batting practice again, and they, I got a fast pitch thrown at me one time. And I realized that, you know, that what they say about hitting a fastball or hitting a curveball is 100% true. It might be one, one of the toughest things, to do in sports because I've never been so scared of a ball cup whizzing by my face uh, as I was watching that. A lot different throwing layup pitches to hitting a, a major league pitcher that is that is humming a ball at around 90, 92, 93. I, I, I got a, a very big wake-up call and appreciated what, what batters can do. In, in the box in a, you know, during a professional game. It's, it's, it's amazing how we totally appreciate and understand the talent level that, uh, that you have to have to reach, you know, to reach the professional ranks. It's pretty awesome. It is cool. And, and, you know, you go sport to sport and you just see it because you're, you're, you know, you're a pro in what you do. So that's not a big, you know, I'll ask Jeremy, Hey, tell me, tell me how to do this. I, I had a tough time always as a kid, even skating on the lakes to stop, set myself and, and legit slap shot. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd fall on the ice and now you're a pro. It's like, what are you talking about, Boney? That's, that's easy for me to do. Well, yeah, it's not easy for me to do. You come over to the, to the baseball side, like you said, and, and it's, it's different, but, but it's cool. It's cool. And, and we're lucky enough to get to kind of live that a little bit and get to, to witness other sports at the highest level. You know, that's when, when you go out and you play golf and you play with a tour player, uh, how cool it is. And, just to watch how purely they hit the ball consistently. Cause this is something we do recreationally and it's, it's a hobby for us, but to watch the best players in the world, it, you get a new appreciation for the other sports. I, I, I just think it's a real cool thing. Yeah. hundred percent. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. All right. So you're, you're traded to the Kings for the 0506. You go back to the coyotes and you finish up your career with the, with the sharks and you retire after the 09, 09 season, uh, 20 years in the NHL. Um, I want to talk about fights. I want to talk about protocol. And what, what are the unwritten rules in the NHL about fights and, and the etiquette part of it? Well, I think, number one, I think a lot has changed over the years. Um, 
fighting has decreased dramatically in the National Hockey League these, these days um, uh, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, the protocol was, listen, if, if you're going to, if you're going to hit somebody, you're going to play a certain style of game. You were, you're almost expected and required to, to, to step up to the plate to, you know, to have, um, to take you, take your, take your licks, drop the gloves and, and, and fight. Uh, I mean, obviously, obviously the, the, the no cheap, the, it's the normal, you know, the normal kind of rules that you would have, you know, no cheap shot and don't hit somebody when they're on the ice. Don't hit somebody when they're, when they're vulnerable. Uh, if the referee has them, you know, there's, when you look at somebody and you, and you're asked to go for a certain reason, um, probably a good idea to go whether you want to or not. It's almost, it's almost like a, the, the man code, right? If, uh, if somebody hits your, your best player, if someone's taking liberties on your best player, it is up to certain players to, to, you know, to send a message that, Hey, listen, if you're going to take liberties on our best player, you're going to slash him. You're going to hit him. You're going to cheap shot him. Uh, somebody on your team is going to get hurt. There's going to be a fight. There's going your your best players are going to be targeted, and it's a protection mode. I mean, there's you know back when I played, they had the they had the the tough guys, literally the the guys that fought. Um, they didn't do much else in the game except be those uh, those protectors, protectors of of the top players. They were the enforcers, and they were the policemen. They kept the dummies from running around doing dumb things to the good players. Nobody wanted to see the good players fight, although there were players like myself and Brendan Shanahan and uh, Doug Gilmore and Wendell Clark that could score goals that could fight as well. Um, but, you know, you, you have to be, you have to, you have to take your licks. Like I was a guy that ran around, I hit a lot and I hit people and I hit people hard. And I knew that if I was going to do that, that if somebody said, Hey, it's time to go didn't matter whether I knew I was going to get beat up or not. You got to step to the plate because if you don't, you're going to get a bad reputation. And one thing that you don't want in hockey is to be called a pussy, called a, uh, a cheap shot, call, be called, uh, you know, any one of these, uh, these, these names that you might be called a fraud on the ice. That's just the last thing you want as a reputation amongst the players in the league. So there are a lot of times when I had to step to the plate because I made a big hit next thing you know, one of the toughest guys in the team's coming over to, uh, you know, to give me a little message and, you know, the message was sent, but, you know, at least I stepped to the plate. I took a beating and came back and did it again. I think people respect, respect you for doing that. They respect you when you, you know, when you're, when you're held accountable and you, and you step to the plate, you don't, you don't chicken shit out. And, you know, there's a lot of code, there's a lot of code in the game and, you know, fighters fight, fight, fight each other um the top players are supposed to be left alone but when they're not they're they're going to they're going to get beat up I'll, I'll tell you a really cool story um that happened in philadelphia so philly was playing philly was playing uh the new york rangers and uh the rangers i told you that obviously they hate each other's big rivalry the fly the rangers brought up this their their uh their minor league tough guy their minor league fighter to play in the game because they, they wanted to have a little bit of a tough game. They wanted to throw around the, the flyers a little bit. So during warm up, 
this tough guy was skating around center ice and literally yelling at the other team's top guy, the other team's top guy and the other team's tough guy. Now the other team's tough guy is his name is Craig Berube, who plays for St. Who is coaching for St. Louis now. So Craig Berube was a tough, tough mother in his, in his day. And I remember it's one guy though was an absolute killer that he played for the Rangers. He was just one of the toughest, one of the meanest looking guys and intimidating even for a tough guy like Craig Bruby. And all throughout trade up uh, warmups, he was yelling, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to knock you out. You're going to feel paid. You're going to all this stuff. <laughs> so right before the game, so right before the game started, right after the national anthem, as the teams go back onto the bench, this guy is yelling at the bench to the other bench. So Craig Bruby, instead of going on the bench, skated all the way down past all the, all the players on the Ranger side. So literally skated down the Rangers bench, went all the way to the end of the bench where Brian Leach, who was the best, best defenseman in the National Hockey League at the time, superstar. And he went right up to Brian Leach and he goes, Brian, I'm just telling you right now, you tell that big dummy at the end of the bench to shut his, shut his fucking mouth and he better watch himself because if he touches me, I'm going to come and beat the shit out of you. And, <laughs> and, and Brian Leach stood up and said, hey, Johnny, sit down, buddy. Sit down. Take it easy. No fighting for you this game. You're out. And remember that kid never, never once um, bothered anybody on the flyers because Brian Leach told them, listen, you don't touch one of those guys because I don't want my ass kicked by Craig Berube. So I thought that was a pretty funny way of dealing with a tough guy from another tough guy. And it's fascinating to me, the whole hockey thing. The fact that you could just, all right, it's accepted. We just drop the gloves and here we go. This is a part of the game. Nobody's getting suspended for a month. It's the only sport where you can do that. Um, but there's so, yeah, there's you know, probably crazy. Still- I've, I've had I've, I've, I've had beers with people that I've, that I've, that I've fought with right after games. I mean, there, there's a guy who used to play with me. His name was Stu Grimson. Um, and he was a phenomenal man and very, very, very God, God fearing guy. And, but he was a tough guy. He was a fighter and he was a designated fighter. And I remember every time he fought somebody, he would go to the penalty box and literally apologize and say, Hey man, I'm sorry. I had to fight you. You know, no, no hard feelings, literally apologize to the other guy for having to fight him. And I it's just, you know, he knew his role, knew his job, didn't, it didn't enjoy it, but knew that's what he had to do. And literally would, you know, ask the other guy, are you okay? Are you okay, man? Hey, I'm sorry. I had to do that. You know, <laughs> good fight. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's cool. And, and it's just, like you said, there, there's certain things that are just known and the players just know if you do this, this happens. If, and in baseball, it's always been an eye for an eye. You know, I might get hit in a spring training game and I don't have to say a word because I know the guys in the bullpen are watching this game and they just kind of check it off in their mind. And one day, if the right spot comes up, there's going to be some payback for drilling me in the ribs. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been on the other side of it. When somebody gets drilled, eh, there's a good chance I'm going to get hit. And I don't know if it's this week. It might be. It might be down the road. It might be in September. But I know when the score's right, 
and, and they got me in the right position. I might, I might have to get hit for what one of my teammates might have done, but it's a known thing. It's an eye for an eye. When things are squared up amongst players, it's just kind of a tip of the cap and all right, are we square? All right, let's move on and play. But I think that's cool, and I think that's the way sports should be. And and I just see in today's game, like you said, that the the tough guys aren't what they used to be in the NHL. If the NHL is changing in that way. You know, the other sports are going to get a lot softer. And I think we need to let these guys play sometime. There's too much umpire getting involved. On, you know, when I'm speaking on the baseball side, it's like you got to let these guys fight it out on the field. This is where we square the square the score. Not yep. not anywhere else. And and we're kind of getting away from that. And it, it, it bothers me a little bit because I, I love that part of the game. I love the nuances. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, we call it the, you know, um, old-time hockey or old-time baseball, right? And, you know, we've kind of lost a lot of that. Obviously, things do change. Mentalities change. Sports change. But there is still something to be said about letting letting the game be the game. Right. And it's the same in hockey. You know, the referees sometimes have too much of a, of an impact or an influence on a game. Um, I, it drives me crazy when a referee calls a penalty in overtime, you know, that let, let the players just play until somebody scores. Don't, you know, I, I don't want to see a, a goal scored in a power play in overtime, let them play. And, and granted, if it's a, if it's an obvious, you know, major penalty, then, then call it, but nothing, it's too many times I see tic-tac, rinky-dink calls that shouldn't be called in overtime. And, you know, I'm just a true believer in, in the old-time old time mentality. And it's, it's changed a lot. And I've had to sometimes bite my lip and bite my tongue um, to criticize some of these guys sometimes and just understand that that's just how the game is these days. Uh, did a lot of work on the broadcasting sign for the NHL. Um, and in 07, you worked the playoffs for TSN. I, I did a similar thing. You were still playing. I did that in 03 uh, for the playoffs. They were mm-hmm. trying it in Major League Baseball. I didn't want to do it, and they, they kind of coaxed me into doing it. I, I didn't say much. I was very hesitant because I was still a player. I was kind of in my prime, and it was really tough to me for me to be critical of the other players. I know that you did some work for the playoffs for TSN in, in 07, mm-hmm. While still a player, um, was that was that tough for you? Still having to go out on the ice, you know, say four months later and face those guys, or is, or were those aspirations you had as a player that this is what I want to do when I'm done? Well, I didn't think about that whether I, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I, you know, I was known as a guy who spoke his mind. Uh, that was would give good press press quotes would tell the truth of how I thought about a game or tell the truth about what I thought about a play or a player or a referee. I, I, I told the truth where a lot of people would bite their tongue because um, they didn't, they one didn't want the repercussions of, of the team yelling at them or the league being mad at them or other players being, um, you know, being resentful. I, I really never really cared about that. I, you know, I wasn't about, making friends. I had my friends. I had the, my teammates. I had, you know, my family and, and my supporters. I, I, I just truly believe that you, you tell what you see, you report what you see. People, people know when analysts are, are feeding you crap when they're using generic bullshit to, to try to de- describe a game. 
the people that are watching are watching the game. They have their own opinions. They see what's going on. What they want is mm-hmm. to know what a player that has been in that situation feels about that. They, they, they want to hear real analysis. And unfortunately today, um, you see people on television that are too worried about hurting people's feelings or having a relationship with someone to, you know, to uh, maybe to, you know, to help that those, those relationships and, and conversations that they won't say anything. I, I was told when I first got the television, we're here to teach, inform, but not make friends. We're not here to make friends and keep friends. We're here to teach and inform. So I always, I always try to give my honest analysis of, 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 a, of a game, of a referee, of a player. And, you know, I can remember I was hard on the teams that I played for that I loved. I was hard on players that were my friends. Um, but I was also very complimentary of those players. And, you know, I had one player that says, geez, you really threw me under the bus on television the other night, you know, calling me out. I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't have to do that. I said, if you don't like me calling you out, then don't play bad. Don't play like shit. You know, play better. Put a, little, put a little more effort. Yeah. Put a little more effort into it. Cause you know what? If you play well, because I do like you, you, you I'm going to make you look 10 times better than you probably were. So, you know, don't yell at me because I was honest because you played a shit game. You played a shit game. You deserve to get called out. You're making millions of dollars. Don't, you know, I'm not here to, I'm not here to, you know, blow smoke up somebody's ass when somebody else sees it. And they're like, why is JR saying that so-and-so played a good game or, you know, had an average game when he totally sucked? And it's the same with the referees. So, you know, I just, I, I think a lot of people appreciate it and, and, and like that I spoke like it was. And then, and I, you know, I used some creativity and I was energetic and, you know, I had fun with it, but still told the truth. I, I, I just don't see that, especially in hockey. You don't see it anymore. It's too generic. It's too boring. There's nobody that wants to go on an edge. There's nobody wants to cause any controversy. They want it clean. They want it and they want it uh, bland. And that's what they have. Well, I think you, you hit it on the head when you say, uh, you know, it, it, if you don't, if, if you just, if you gloss over everything and, and just say, oh, everything's okay, it was a bad situation, you're going to lose the audience respect because you can't just comb over, roll over everything. As a player, and I think you probably agree with me on this, I don't know if you will, but as a player, I didn't mind, especially when I was one of the main guys, you know, I was getting paid a lot of money. I expected to be criticized if I wasn't bringing the mail. That being said, I expected them to do it in a classy, professional way. And as long as you did it professionally, I can take being criticized. You know, you don't want to be mm-hmm. criticized at that level. Well, then, you know, play once a week and, and, and not make the money that you can make of being a top player and nobody will criticize you. But I think as long as you do it in a, in a classy, professional way, I think players deep down appreciate that because, like you said, the coin flip is when you're playing well, I'm going to be I'm going to give you all the praise in the world. And that's the world we live in. And, and that's what you sign sure. up for. And you when you make a ton of money, there's a price to be paid for that. You're going to get a lot of perks 100%. and a lot of glory when things yeah. are going great. Yeah. But when things aren't yeah. going great, you're going to be criticized a little bit. You better be able to handle it. 
Well, it's it's a, it's accountability, right? And everybody wants to be everybody's got to be held accountable. And I, I think you just hit hit the nail on the head. Listen, everybody wants to everybody wants to be the star and the, and the glory and be the hero. And when you play well, you you love it when they when they they talk about you. They love it when you're the headline of the of the paper. You know, Jr. You know, Jr. Comes to the rescue. Jr. Wins the game. You know, Booney hits the what hits the walk off. You know, saves saves the season. We all we all love those stories. And but you can't expect just to have good things being said about you when you just play well. And, and that's, if you, and, I, and I love that. I was the same way. You know, I didn't like it when I had bad press because that means I wasn't living up to my end of the bargain. I, I never, you know, with the exception of one, one writer uh, ever, I never criticized a writer for writing, you know, bad things about me because it was never personal. It was just how I played. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I, I could talk about this forever. What are you up to now? So I'm up to a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I'm enjoying uh, my time away from, away from the television, but still on uh, kind of on the airwaves on um, a platform that myself and a, and a friend of yours, Eric Burns, um, Eric Burns uh, from your, one of your, your days of playing with one of the craziest baseball players I know, um, ex-Major League Baseball guy, Eric Burns. We started a, a, a streaming network called nofilter.net where we create our own content. Uh, mine is a, a hockey show called Hits Hard on Monday and Thursdays. Actually, this Thursday on Hits Hard, Booney, you'll be interested to know I'm having one of my biggest arch rivals, one of my nemesis in my whole career, Darian Hatcher, as my guest. Uh, he broke, he broke my, he's the one that broke my jaw in five places in 98 and blew my knee out in 93, 94 season and was always a pain in my side. And he's going to be on with me this Thursday at 530 Pacific time on Hits Hard on nofilter.net. It's, it's sure to be a, a, a great, a great show and, and great conversation with a guy who inflicted a lot of pain and, and destruction to my body. So, so I'm doing that, which is uh, which has been a lot of fun, and um, you know I'm dabbling in a couple other businesses. Um, I've uh, been working with a therapeutics company here in San Diego, being a consultant for them. Um, you know, kind of dabbling in esports, uh, in the golf world, um, a couple apps here and there. And, you know, I'm keeping myself busy, and you know, I think um, I think my next. My next 20 years should be very interesting. I think I, it probably won't include um, the the National Hockey League, but will will be very interesting in terms of trying to stay a little bit in the spotlight. Jeremy Roenick, what do you want to be remembered for? It's always a great question, right? And it's, I think that's the that's the to me that's the best question that you can ask a retired athlete, right, or a, an athlete that uh, had a long career you know, when you're gone. And um, for me, I think it goes back to that story that I told you in the beginning of our, of our conversation, that um, the mentality that people kind of looked at me after my first playoff playoff game of a guy who showed up, he showed up to play. He gave everything that he had. He was a warrior on the ice. Um, He was tough to play against. And, you know, I was one of those guys that loved getting booed um, because you know, if they weren't booing you, then you weren't you you, you weren't a, a a factor in the game. 
that you weren't noticeable. You didn't do damage on the other team. So I want to be remembered as that guy who was really hard to play for. That was a good teammate that you know, when you looked at them across the locker room, when they looked at me across the locker room, they knew that I was going to be there and that I was going to have one of my best games in the, in, in the biggest moments. So, um, you know, that's, that's how I want to be remembered. I, I want to be re- remembered because I was remember because I was memorable. I, I don't want to be forgotten because I didn't have an impact. Very cool. Well, Jeremy, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, awesome. One of the, one of the best to ever do it. And, and, and I hope that day comes when, when you get that call from the hall, what we do here at the end of each and every Boone podcast, we bring back the voice of the podcast Dan Levy to ask a question from the fans. Dano. Gentlemen. JR. I got a couple I got a couple of questions for you because I'm in Chicago and there's things I gotta know. Number one. Let me have it. Do you have a good Jordan story? Great. I got a couple great Jordan stories. Um, you probably heard the one about me playing thirty six holes and, and hammering down a case of case of Bud Light amazing right before right before right before he played a game against Cleveland at the end of the season um, and beating him for seven seven or eight thousand and then betting them that he, that they would lose that night and Michael goes out after playing 36 holes and literally scores 52 points and they win by like 20 26 points it was just nuts <laughs> watching this guy you know after i bet him the money that he owed me that he's gonna lose and he pretty much didn't come out of the game the whole time so i i can just i could just tell that he told he told phil jackson i am not coming out of this game not because i want to win the game because i want my money back from ronick it was great <laughs> um i i have another quick little story um my wife always wanted us to have dinners at home on Sunday with the family and I'm playing in Chicago and Michael, Michael and I are playing on a Sunday and I beat him pretty good on the golf course. Again, it was about four thirty, and I was going to go home to have dinner with the family. That was pretty much a must with my wife. And Michael says, Nope, we're not, you're not going home. We're going in, into the, uh, into the clubhouse. And I'm going to play gin. And I'm like, I do not care. My wife's going to kill me. He goes, I don't care. He says, you're not, you're not leaving. You have my money. You got to give me a chance to get it back. So I remember calling my wife, Tracy and telling her I wasn't coming home and she was all pissed off at me. And Michael told her I'm not coming home. And I'm like, okay. So I had to bite the bullet and I went in there to play, play uh, gin rummy with him. And I found out that Michael Jordan was a much better gin rummy player than he was a golfer. And he was probably <laughs> as good a gin, as good a gin rummy player as he was a basketball player. Cause he tattooed me for about 10 grand after I beat him for six or seven, got his money back. Plus it was pretty, pretty amazing to watch him throw, throw, uh, throw cards around the gin table. Anybody that was here for during that, that era that you were here, everybody's got one Dennis Rodman story. Do you have one? Uh, I got a, I got a bunch of Dennis Rodman stories. I, Charlie and I used to go to the games all the time, and um, you know we used to hang out with uh, with with Rodman and 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 Harper and and the boys. And I, I just remember every, every after every game of the Bulls when Charlie and I went, you know um, Pippen would want to head to. We wanted to go to Benihana after every game and just would order bottles and bottles of sake and then. You know, instead of going out to the clubs, he liked going to he liked going to a gay bar and just hanging out because nobody bothered him there. And I thought that was that was pretty unique and, and pretty 
pretty funny, you know, how, you know, Rodman is a very open, very, uh, um, very liberal type of guy. And he just, he just, he, he enjoyed that. So, you know, sometimes we had to bite the bullet and go hang out with him in there and just have a, have a good time with him. And he just knew that he could just be himself and not, not bother with the fans, um, kind of having that post game, post game celebration. Pat Foley is about to quit. He's one of the most famous radio broadcasters for the Blackhawks. And do you have any uh, final thoughts of him uh, leaving the booth? Yeah, probably one of the best to ever do it, to tell you the truth. Uh, for somebody to be in, in the booth for that long, I mean, it's uh, pretty spectacular. And the energy that Pat Foley uh, put into the play-by-play the uh, the loyalty that he showed to each and every player that went through that Blackhawks organization and to the Blackhawks organization, um, uh, you know I've I've been a, I've been a huge supporter and fan of his, and you know he's been very critical of me and 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 also a supportive of me, uh, which and very honest to me, which I I love about Pat Foley, but it will be a very um, different different feeling listening to Blackhawk games without the voice of Pat Foley. I don't think it'll ever be the same when he's gone. And, and I hope he gets a, um, he gets as many accolades and as, as much satisfaction from the fans this year, each and every game and the thank yous from the fans, each and every game that he, that he calls this year, because not having him in the game is going to change. It's going to change Blackhawks hockey forever. No question about it. And last one, you have one chance to come back home to Chicago for one day. Are you going deep dish pizza, thin crust, Italian beef, or hot dog? <laughs> um, really good question. I'm 100% going deep dish. And, <laughs> and, and the only reason I say deep dish now is because my favorite, favorite pizza place in Chicago is Aurelio's Pizza. They do, they do thin crust, but now have have finally brought the, 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 the deep dish into their menu. So um, I am going to Aurelio's for a deep dish um, pizza. There's no question. That's where I'll go. Aurelio's is amazing. Jeremy Roenick, thanks for coming on the Boone Podcast. We appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, you guys. Really appreciate the time. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know what that sound is, don't you? Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag. This one comes from Matt in Texas. Who's been some of your favorite podcast guests, and what have you learned on the podcast that you did not know before? Wow. Favorite guests. I've had so many that I've really enjoyed. Uh, I've enjoyed doing the podcast more than I thought, uh, and I've learned that I had a lot to learn. (laughs) What goes in behind the scenes, uh, the the what's required to be prepared uh, a lot of hours by a lot of people and and the the team here at the Boone podcast the guys Dan and and Rich and Liz uh, they've done a great job I've learned that there's you don't just you don't just roll up and do a podcast there's a lot of preparation as far as the guests oh man I've had so many that I've really enjoyed uh, Mike Sosha for me is one of my f- favorites because he made me think he 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 intertwined generations of, of baseball and the analytical versus the past and re- really said some smart things that made me think uh you know i loved interviewing my mom i thought that was great you know always the family members aaron and my my father i've had to this point uh 
all interesting because I've never interviewed them, you know, so it, it was different. But I, I've just enjoyed the whole the whole process. So I couldn't pick a favorite, but but uh, I've enjoyed. There's not too many times where I get off the podcast and say I didn't like that one. Most of them I enjoy. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And this one is coming from Eddie in San Diego. For the July weekend, what does Boone do? And did you ever stay and watch fireworks as a player? I uh, did as a kid in Philly Veterans Stadium when, when my dad was there, my childhood. Uh Always had fireworks, 4th of July. Dad wouldn't shower. He'd get out of the stadium. We'd go park uh, park our car on the side of the road outside the vet and watch them. I, I, I remember doing that since I was three, four years old every year. Uh, so, yeah, done it a lot. Done it a lot. All right. That is going to do it for this year, Brett Boone Podcast. Once again, my name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera Digital. Gets handled by Liz Landry. So please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And if you're there, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to the show. For all of us here in the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See ya.